You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. Uh, today, I talked to Paul Bloom, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, and the Brooks and Suzanne Reagan Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Yale University. Uh, he's the author of eight books, including the bestseller Against Empathy. Um, his new book is called The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk By the boss with the elegant watch The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock Mark the moments till the ticking stops Paul Bloom, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, my first question on these podcasts usually attempts to summarize the key messages uh, from the person's current book. But after I finished your book, I couldn't help but wonder why the guy who wrote Against Empathy didn't title this book Pro-Suffering. Yeah, I was tempted. I was <laughs> tempted. Um, I, I get myself down as the, as the true contrarian. Um, and, you know, it's in some way, my book is in favor of suffering. And that sounds kind of unintuitive and pretty yeah. unlikely. But there are different kinds of books. I wrote this previous book against empathy and I was basically arguing, Hey, everybody, you're doing morality wrong. You're doing morality with your gut. That feels great. It feels like you made the right decisions, but actually it turns out to be biased and unfair. And, um, and I have a better way to suggest you do it. Uh This book is less in your face. This book is more sort of ground up saying, I'm just amazed at what people do in their lives, the way they seek out suffering in certain ways. Let's explore it. Let's see what's up with it. So, um, so it's yeah. less likely to make people angry. Yeah, no, no, no. That's true. Cause I read your last book and, and I remember listening to you on Alan Alda's podcast. And I think you found more areas of agreement, uh, when you dig in to, to, with, with Alda and also in terms of looking at the nuances around a word, whereas this book is really ex- examining what I guess I would call a phenomenon, mm-hmm. uh, of a way we don't think about our, ourselves, uh, Unless we're Buddhist, right? Where we know that uh, happiness and, and sadness and pain and all those things are all mixed together. Yeah. Um, I think in some way, what I have to say about the importance of suffering is old news. It's old news. It's, it's in all the major religions. Buddhism has the Four Noble Truths. Genesis has the story of uh, the Garden of Eden. 
And, um, and, you know, and, and maybe your football coach or your, one of your parents mm-hmm. told you, you know, no pain, no gain. You know, if you're not, if it's not hard, it's not worth doing. So in some way it's common sense. Um, but in another way, it, it many take it as a deeply intuitive claim. Somehow the word's gotten out both in, in my community, my intellectual community of psychologists and, and other scientists looking into mind, and also just your average person. A lot of people think we're hedonists. A lot of people think that we just do things for pleasure. And from that perspective, I'm, I think my book is kind of a challenge to this to make those people rethink. Would it be fair to say that you have a general distrust of happiness research? Well, you know, I, I, I tell a story. I, I used to think it was old garbage. It was terrible. And, and in some way, that's because I was getting it from, from TED Talks and from popular magazines. Right. But some of the stuff's just, just awful. Um, I could tell you stories, just, just really like really um, horrible philosophy, very simple minded philosophy um, mixed in with terrible psychological experiments that will never replicate, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, all this, this stuff about um, I heard this talk about this guy was saying, you know, depressed people, what you'd want to do is you make them like run marathons, get rigorous exercise, not make them less depressed. And I'm thinking you can't get an average person to rigorous exercise, getting a depressed person. to rigorous, How do you do that? Right, right. You, know, you never told us that trick. Mm-hmm. However, um, the work done by the top people in the field, people like, uh, you know, Marty Seligman, who's the founder mm-hmm. of positive psychology, or my old pal, Lori Santos, who's at, at Yale, has this wonderful happiness podcast, gets really sophisticated and really smart. And um, maybe at some point I thought this book was going to kind of trash positive psychology, but I ended up learning a lot from it and drawing a lot from it. Yeah. And Dan Gilbert is certainly Dan Gilbert. Dan Gilbert looms over my book like nobody else. Yes. I, I say more of his experiments, and I disagree with him more than yep. anybody. And he's just wonderful. Everybody should have somebody, uh, uh, sort of intellectual foe like Dan Gilbert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's, I, I'd love to start by talking about the semantics around the word suffering. Because you, you start this book by talking a lot about what the book isn't and, and why you chose to use certain words. Because I think people, I, I don't, I, I, I think people have trouble understanding any positives to suffering. So can you talk a little bit about that word? Yeah. So people use the word in different ways. I use suffering. I'm going to have a broad tent for suffering, which is everything we normally find bad. So physical pain, emotional pain, grief, shame, effort, anxiety, stress, all of those things. And it, it includes everything from horrible, painful, agonizing experiences all the way to sort of simple boredom and simple anxiety. And the argument I make is that, yes, normally we think of suffering and pain as bad, as opposed to happiness and pleasure, which are good. But the interesting twists of being a person is that sometimes this suffering is exactly what we want. And sometimes we want suffering because it gives pleasure. You know, I think of like spicy foods that burn your mouth or rigorous exercise or scary movies, you know, coming out of Halloween, you know, haunted mm-hmm. houses. We want to be afraid. Nobody ever said, oh, this was the greatest horror movie ever because it wasn't the slightest bit scary. <laughs> no, you know, you, you want to be scared. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then uh, also, though, uh, suffering as a, as a core to meaning. As you know, sometimes we don't get pleasure out of suffering, but we suffer because it's part and parcel of what we see as a good life. Um, you write in the book, quote, we scream when we are in pain, but weirdly, we also scream for the opposite of pain, intense pleasure, joyous surprise great excitement, end quote. And, and that's the same with crying and even sometimes laughter yeah. as well. 
Um, and there's a term, I think, that uh, Paul Rosen, if I'm saying that right, coined, which is benign yep. masochism. Yeah. Um, this gets to the pleasure part of the book. And this was what originally got me into the book, which was, mm-hmm. wasn't, I didn't think I was talking, talking about meaning or purpose or whatever, like some old rabbi or whatever, but, I, but it seems to be the lot I found. But when I started the book, I was, um, I was really interested in why do we get pleasure from pain? And why, and what's the relationship between pleasure and pain? And, and you're right at the extremes, they, they blend together. I talk about some research in, in reported in journal science, which looked at, at athletes who have just won an incredible competition versus those who have just lost. And the thing is, you can't tell the difference from their faces. They're all contorted up. And so they seem to meet one another in sort of a balance. And this is one of the explanations for benign masochism, why we seek out pain, which is sometimes we seek out pain because pain sets the stage for pleasure. Um, There's a lot of laboratory experiments where they they mildly hurt people, and then they find that a neutral experience later on becomes infused with pleasure because it's the contrast. And, you know, um, if you you have a, a really hot bath and you're, well, I think a sauna, you're just sweating your guts out in a sauna and you jump into a cool lake. It is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, or, or take it up a scale, like a, you know, a revenge film, like John Wick, you know, at the beginning they kill his dog and that's really sad. But then in the, the second two thirds of the movie, he kills everybody. And that's really great. Um, and, and, um, and you'd be not understanding things if you said, Hey, I know how to make John Wick a better movie. Let's take out, that sad part at the beginning. Well, no, because the sad part of the beginning is essential for the good part at the end. So there's a sort of balance of pain and pleasure that, um, that I think connects up to benign masochism. Uh, there, another thing that I, I love in the book is there's these insights that somehow that, that sort of appear in between the things you're talking about. Uh, and you write in the book, quote, actually all experience is understood and valued in the terms of contrast. Uh, the only good answer to the question, how are you feeling is compared to what? Um, that's a really that's a really powerful insight in terms of like yeah yeah the, the contrast is the thing that's important here the fulcrum that all this sort of moves on. I, I totally agree with you, and I could I could say it's a wonderful insight because it's certainly not mine. Uh, okay. Scientists have been working this for a while, so there's there's for instance studies of um, of gambling, and in some way this is common sense, which is how do you feel when you lose ten dollars? Well, it depends. If you're expecting to lose a hundred dollars, you you feel great. If you're expecting to win $100, you feel awful. And so too with even sort of physical experiences. How do you feel if you get like a, a jolt of, of, of heat on your arm? Well, if you're expecting a much bigger jolt, it could feel really good. If you weren't expecting it at all, it could feel really bad. And, um, and, and we, we have this contract and we, we play with it. We, um, we sort of push ourselves in experiences of pain so we can rebound into pleasure. Um, you write in the book, quote, humans are blessed with the power to conjure up worlds that don't exist and might never exist. And this changes everything. Tell us how it changes everything. So my book is about, a large part of my book is about what we enjoy and what we get pleasure from. And humans are by far unique in the amount of pleasure we get that's inside of our heads. Um, You know, People say they enjoy sex and good food and good company, but we spend a fraction of our time doing that. What we spend a lot of our time is on Netflix and going to movies and reading novels and fantasizing and dreaming 
And so much of our pleasures are imaginary. And, and I talk about how we choose to suffer in these as well. We have mm-hmm. morbid daydreams. We think of worst case scenarios. We go to movies which have nothing but trouble with, with tragedies and, 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 and horror movies and so on. And one reason why we are particularly prone to retreat to unpleasantness in imagination is that it's safe. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in that um, if I'm playing um, Call of Duty on my, uh, as a video game, um, I'm not actually going to catch a bullet in the head. If, if I'm watching a horror movie, I'm really not going to encounter a vampire or, or an axe murderer. So it's a safe way to play with pain and play with trouble. And that's what we often do. Um, I, I, you, when you talk about the people who are good at understanding other people's minds, and you, you mentioned that are gifted teachers, but also seducers, psychologists, psychiatrists, and also torturers. And it made me think of uh, a, a quote from Mir Ayel's uh, last book or book before, where uh, he said, and I use this all the time, if it can't be used for evil, it's not a superpower, <laughs> which I find very useful. That's, I think that's what you're talking about there. That's lovely. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, that's right. If it's a power at all, then, um, it's, then it's like strength or intelligence. Yeah. Are they good things? Well, in the hands of a good person, they're good things. In the hands of a bad person, right. they're, they're bad things as we see every day in our lives. Yes. yes. Uh, so uh, you talk a lot about storytelling and play, and that's, of course, the field I grew up in. And uh, <clears throat> my wife, who is a um, tenured professor of comedy, she runs the first ever uh, bachelor's degree in uh, comedy writing and performance. Oh, best job and, ever. Uh, it is the best job ever. Yeah, she gets to show uh, you know Preston Sturgis films and listen to Bob Newhart records with her students and have them discover that. So she's how, how do student, students deal with older forms of comedy? Does it does does it last? Does it age well? Uh, so uh, up to now, her students like love Ernie Kovacs. Yeah. They find it, which makes sense if you think of the absurd and Ernie Kovacs was sort of you know out of scale. And they and a lot of times they like some of the Preston Sturges uh, stuff as well. There's other things that she has to do uh, a bunch of caveats before, like the honeymooners. Like he's not going to hit her. No, but it's still threats of spousal abuse are not, they're no longer as funny as they used no, to be. No, and then, and then she has to sort of debate with herself, like, do I keep Bill Cosby on the curriculum? Do I keep Woody Allen on the curriculum? And oh, you know, so, so many questions. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's but it's, it's, it's risky stuff when, when you think about it, and that, that's what they're sort of signing up for. And, and her, uh, her new book that's going to come out on Northwestern University Press is her theories of comedy. And I talk about this because her theory of comedy starts with three, three things, recognition, pain, and distance. Um, and this is close to stuff that you talk about as well. And so in her, in her theory of comedy, those three ingredients are like a mixing board. So recognition being like, you know, you, you relate to where the person is, some degree of pain, um, uh, but then a mattering of distance. So after a year after 9-11, we could put that situation in a comedy show in Chicago, probably not in New York in terms of that yes. distance. yes. Right. Yes. Um, there, there's a line by, by Mel Brooks. I think tragedy is when is when I cut my finger. Comedy is when you fall in a manhole and die. Die. Yes. You know, that is this is distance. That is the opening lines of her book. <laughs> it's, it's Excellent. Um, and and you talk about that because you 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 say quote to appreciate negative stories in fiction and in reality you need to have a certain distance, not too close or, or too far. Um, and 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 that that weaves itself in 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 your book a fair, a fair amount. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it speaks to a puzzle I've long been interested in, which is, you know, for all of these masochistic pleasures, your mileage may vary. Some people hate spicy foods. Some people hate sad music. Some people love sad music. And it's actually, I, I, I don't, I, I often think, well, what personality types do this and do that? And nobody knows. It seems kind of random. But I think one way to get under the hood for part of it is what you're saying. So take horror movies. There used to be this terrible theory of horror movies, which is that people who who um, liked horror movies weren't afraid. But, you know, you test it. And, of course, they're just as afraid as people who don't like horror movies. But they enjoy the fear. And I wonder whether some of that psychological distance. You'd never take a seven-year-old to a really scary movie because a seven-year-old can't you know, block it off, can't appreciate this is just a movie. It doesn't have the distance. Distance is a skill which is difficult to do and some and people vary. And I wonder whether the to enjoy these sort of imaginative, painful imaginative experiences, you need to establish a distance and people vary in their ability to do this or their desire to do this. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, one of the things we talk a lot about here, because improvisation is a practice I call it human being practice. It, it, we, we're practicing how to communicate, how to collaborate, how, how to um, uh, act. Uh, and you talk about play reflecting an evolved motivation to practice. And I want to sort of unlock what, what you mean there. Yeah, it's such, an, <laughs> it's such an, an interesting idea. It comes from evolutionary biology. Um, and the question that these biologists were wondering is, why do animals play? Why do they play fight? And why do they do things like that? They race against each other and so on. Dogs have an elaborate play rituals involving, you know, bows and so on. And the theory they've come to, which I think is correct, is that play is a form of practice. Mm-hmm. So take play fighting. Fighting is a valuable skill to have. One way to get good at fighting is to fight. But if you get in a lot of fights, you could kill somebody. You get killed yourself. So evolution came up with this incredibly cool trick, which is you hang around with, with your, your siblings, your friends, your allies, and you play at fighting. You, you fight, but you hold back. You have all various rules and so on. And, you know, there, this is in the domain of sex, this is in the domain of, of sports, and, and um, all these young animals will play in various ways for practice. And from this perspective, play, which is typically thought of as sort of a physical thing, extends into the imagination. So, you know, it's, you know, you and I could, could, could like, you know, put on boxing gloves and play at, at fighting, but we could also have a conversation where we imagine an apocalyptic world and there we're sort of, and, and, and be characters in it. And there we're playing, even though we may not be moving, we're just talking to each other, but there we're playing at apocalypse. We're playing at, at what's going to happen when the government collapses and there's no law and everything like that. Yeah. And there are war games, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and there's football and there's, yeah. there's, you know, there's team sports. I think so much of, um, so much of our entertainments could be really understood. If you see what they are is satisfying an appetite to engage in some stuff, which isn't a game at all, deadly serious, but then you, you change it in some ways. And then there's a word for what it feels like to partake in them. And a word is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, in the chapter on struggle, um, you talk about the brain as muscle theory, which you say captures everyday experience yeah. in an elegant way, but has some serious limitations. I'm talking to uh, Annie Murphy Paul in a couple of days uh-huh. on the extended mind, and that that idea comes up. She she really hates that metaphor because she thinks it, it it doesn't it takes us away from understanding what thinking is. Yeah, um, 
and he has such interesting ideas about about thinking and the scope of thinking. It connects a lot to what you to what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the idea of willpower as a muscle is incredibly appealing, and kind of in my heart, I feel it's right. Where you know, if I work on something for a while, sooner or later, I get I get sick of it. I can't work for too long. I can't write for too long. I can't do anything difficult for too long. Sooner or later, I just have to check my email. I have to check my email. I have to go on Twitter. I, I, I have to do not stop doing hard work. And it feels a lot like I'm tired of lifting boxes. And so I understand why this theory is so intuitively plausible. Um, it's got really gotten a, drub, a drubbing in the field. And it seems like, mm. because the brain isn't like a muscle. It doesn't use up resources in the same way. You know, it doesn't burn off. You know, hard work, doesn't, hard intellectual work does not burn off calories in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so the different theory is sort of more cognitive, which says that, um, that you're always looking, you're always worried about opportunity costs. And the more time you spend doing something, the more, the more you're starting to wonder at some level, am I missing something? And, that, and that's what pulls you away. Um, uh, I'm a parent. I think it appears you are too. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's very interesting when you write research finds that day-to-day experience of being a parent gives you little pleasure, particularly when your child or children are young. And I had to sit and think about that. And I'm like, oh yeah, like that part was like, you, you have no life. You are shuttling from place to place. You're dealing with tantrums. You, you, you know, you forgot the snow pants. I mean, there's, there's like, there's no fun in that. I remember my kids were young and, and I had a chance to fly on a plane somewhere without my young kids. That was so nice. I could <laughs> sleep. I could read. I didn't have, you know, different ages with diaper changes and barfing and all that stuff. And, and so, so it's kind of a, now, now the original studies showed having kids just sucked pleasure wise. Mm-hmm. And destruction on relationships and unhappiness. Later studies find it's more complicated. And you find it, it depends a lot who you are. Women take more of a hit than men. Yeah. There's a big country difference. So in some countries, parents are happier than non-parents. In the United States, although the data, I don't know, maybe there's new data. I've heard something about new data, but at least several years ago, um, parents were less happy. And it seems to be related to issues like child paid childcare and social yeah. support. Yeah. Um, but but the, what I like about this case is suppose it's true that for you and for me, um, our kids gave us less pleasure, took away from the pleasures of our life in some in some real sense. Still, we're not sitting here saying, boy, what we regret it. What a bad no, move. Not, not Most at all. Parents, now, you know, cynical psychologists will say, well, that's because, you know, it's a hell of a thing to regret, you know, especially if your kids are listening to your podcast. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> But um, I think there's another thing, which is I think it, it's a beautiful case that illustrates how there's more to life than pleasure. We want yeah. other things. We want meaning. We want purpose. We want attachment. We want intimacy. It's, it is entirely plausible to say, yeah, having kids actually dropped my day-to-day fun, but they gave me something of extraordinary value. Yeah. And, and I remember thinking at a certain point that until I had children, I never knew I could give of myself to that extent. And I found that to be palpably um, powerful as, as, a, um, as a guidepost for how I want to exist in this world with other humans. Oh, that's nicely put. 
That's nicely put. I have a friend of mine who's a philosopher, Lori Paul. She'd be a great person for you to talk to, by the way. Mm -hmm. She studies transformative experiences. And a transformative experience is an experience you you can't know what it's like until you have it. It includes, um, you know, having children, a religious conversion. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, um, it, it includes maybe joining military, going to war, mm-hmm. and so on. And one of the aspects of of a transformative experience is you come to value different things. Yeah. You know, you you if you have a par- a good parent values different things than a non-parent. A non-parent might want to have fun. A good parent may want to have other things. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I I couldn't tell in the book whether you believe post-traumatic growth is a thing or not a thing. Yeah. Oh, I've gotten into such arguments about it. Um, let me say, I believe in resilience. There's some really yeah. good studies coming out that resilience is is the rule. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is kind of an exception. I don't think COVID is going to leave us with this mass epidemic of broken people. I think we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're stronger than we think. I also don't doubt that bad things could happen and good things could come from it. Now, life's complicated. There's, you know, um, somebody get assaulted and it could just change your life in some way, which eventually is positive. But I feel a lot of claims about post-traumatic growth are really overblown. Mm-hmm. And often they rely on self-report. So you take a bunch of people who um, who's had terrible things happen, death of a child, some terrible physical assault, that's horrible illness. And then you ask them like sometime later, are you stronger? Are you more spiritual? Are you kinder? And people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's the evidence for post-traumatic, uh, sorry, post-traumatic growth. But then other studies come along and they do two things. First, they look at people's lives and they find that when you look at things objectively, it's not actually the case that they're showing any sort of objective improvement. And then they also have studies for the first time control groups. It turns out that even if nothing bad happened to you, if I ask you, so are you kinder? Are you smarter? Are you more spiritual? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People, people tend to think that they grow no matter what. Yeah. So I'm skeptical about claims about post-traumatic growth. Yeah. Um, uh, I want you to respond to, you, you read the book, quote, some of our thoughts about the relationship between suffering and goodness are not rational. What, what do you mean there? So that's a good question. Um, suffering is, is, is intimately tied with meaning and purpose, and I'm all for that. But sometimes we go too far. And here's one example of where we go too far. Um, it's, called, it's a phenomenon called tainted altruism. Mm. You take people who do really good things in the world, um, you know, they help people, they, they, they improve people's lives. And you, you tell people, and it's just clear that they do. You make it very clear. But then you say something else. You know, when a person does this, they enjoy doing it. They have fun. Maybe they meet people. Maybe they make money off of it. And then people say, oh, that's bad. I want people to do good to suffer. If they don't suffer, it's not good. This shows up in all, it's, you know, in the ice bucket challenge. Why were people pouring freezing water over their heads? Why weren't they like having a hot fart Sunday or getting a nice massage? Because that's the way goodness works. Goodness has to be associated with suffering. And I think too much of a focus on that leads us to, um, to dismiss people who make the world a better place uh, and don't suffer. And also it tends to um, miscalibrate us so that sometimes really loud sufferers, like, oh, I'm going through so much pain, I'm working so hard on this, they get extra credit where kind of yeah. they shouldn't. Yeah. 
I, I, I think about this because it comes up a lot, right? I, so there's a podcast that I listen to that I listen to the credits and one of the Koch brothers is uh, a sponsor of it. Yeah. And it, it's a very positive podcast and it's about speaking across difference and all those things, but I can't help but feel like a little bit like, uh, I don't want that. We don't like, we, we, we're very worried about, about things being tainted. Um, a few days ago, Elon Musk went on Twitter and in some way, this was a hypothetical argument, but somebody at the United Nations said for $6 billion, we could end world hunger. I know how to do it. And Elon Musk says, okay, I'll give you $6 billion. If you know how to do it, let's walk through this. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if anything's going to come to this, but if Elon Musk, solve world hunger to a tenth of one percent um he would have done far more good in his life than me and everybody else i know yeah but but instead but people but people wouldn't say it it's because elon musk he's on saturday Night live he didn't he date some rocker isn't he yes isn't he, right. isn't he always isn't he always having a lot of fun how mm-hmm. could he be good mm-hmm. i like my good people to be sad and grumpy <laughs> and determined and i think that that's kind of silly yeah, that's that's the play with that we're we, that we want written. All right, I'm going to ask you a couple more things, and then and then ask you for a yes and story. Uh, your comments about about why children in elite high schools are taught Latin, Greek, and even Sanskrit was chilling. That was chilling. Can, can you tell that about, about that? Oh, this is a, this is from my last book, and it was me being cynical, but I think it's true. Um, uh, w- which is, you know, why does this happen? And and I the cynical view is. It's a signal. It's designed to signal to the world that your kids, and then they signal it themselves, um, mm-hmm. are so secure and so right in the world and have so much potential that you can afford to teach them useless stuff. Um, and and so, so your, your knowledge of arcane stuff is in some way like a dem. It's like the peacock's tail. Look at this. Mm-hmm. The peacock's tail doesn't do anything. It's heavy and it's wasteful, but I haven't. And this is so impressive um and uh as opposed to like learning shop or learning you know public speaking or probability less well, useful well you know who use who who um who who learns useful things people who need to learn useful things you know my kid will learn sanskrit because <laughs> and, and so so that's that's the cynical that's the cynical view it's also why um why when people when couples give you know um when couples give gifts to one another um, when partners in a relationship give gifts to one another, you know, the, the perfect gift is never put this way, but a perfect gift is a useless one because that shows, that shows um, uh, your commitment. If, if I'm with my partner and I say, oh, I put together a lot of money, we're going to use it for renovation. Well, okay, but that doesn't show, show my love for her. That's just mm-hmm. practical. Mm-hmm. So I say, look, I've spent $50,000 on a tiny, shiny rock. You can't do anything with it. Right. That's how much I care for you. Wow. Wow. All right. That's just got even more layered. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, you say, quote, when truth and utility clash, truth comes in second. Why does that happen? Oh, I wish you didn't say that. Um, I, <laughs> you I, did. Apparently I did. Um, I, I would imagine I'm talking not normatively, not how we should do things, but I'm talking about evolution. Yeah. And evolution cares about utility. Evolution says, um, freak out at snakes. And even if snakes are actually not 
on the whole that dangerous. They're dangerous sometimes. And freaking out at, at snakes leads you to a lot of mistakes. But in the end, you might do better than somebody who has a realistic assessment of snakes. We walk around the world way too anxious about bad things happen. And, and we're wrong 99.9% of the time. But that 0.1% is why we're not, you know, why we, why we, we do okay. You know, people talk about, um, people talk about, uh, people have too much anxiety all the time. They're, they're, everybody worries about it, too much anxiety. You find those people in psychiatrist office and clinics, but, um, this, a uh, psychiatrist named Nessie points out, you know where you find people of low anxiety? You find them in morgues and prisons because mm-hmm. they are very cool customers until, and then one day something bad happens and they aren't anxious enough. So this is from a sort of an evolutionary practical point of view. From a moral point of view, from a way we should be as intelligent people, I think truth you know, outweighs utility. I think, I think like a mature person should say to themselves, I want to know what's real, not what makes me feel good. And not what makes me popular. One of the things about improvisation is there's, a, especially in beginners, is there's a lot of unlearning because we're really teaching you to get out of your fear and shame brain um, where, where you're, you know, constantly sort of worried. Again, you can't yeah. be, you have to be with this person and build with this person. And we talk about replacing blame with curiosity and remaining yeah. ever, ever curious. Um, and, and what I find too, is if the, the most successful people here, yes, they're very talented, but it's not just the talents that they show on stage. It's that they take all this improv stuff and they apply it to their life and they recognize that, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to, I got to create psychological safety in order to have my team, you know, play. And I've, I've got to be able to show up and model certain kinds of behavior. And it was just so much I was finding in your book going, oh yeah, improv helps with that. Oh yeah, improv helps with that because it really is sort of gets at that root of it. Well, it's the, it's interesting about the idea of yes. And which is uh, when we started working, we developed a program at the University of Chicago uh, that Richard Thaler greenlit. And he's like, yes, and is a nudge. It's behavioral economists yeah. knowing that people's, you know, they're going to do nothing or say no. So you're literally like offering a nudge to that. I love that. I mean, uh, you know, I, I should, this is convincing me to, to do improv. I've always admired people who could do it. And I've always thought it's one of the many things where I'm, I'm happy to admire and think I can't do, do that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and outside of my sort of, when I'm talking about my books and everything, I'm a fairly repressed person. So it's probably that would be good for me. I literally, there's a guest coming on board. Uh, she wrote a book on fun and she's like, I took one improv class and it was a nightmare and I wrote about it. I'm like, okay, <laughs> yes. well, it's, I get it. It's fine. You it's know. too much fun. Yeah, I get it. Uh, all right. Uh, we always ask our guests for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? Um, I'm not sure this counts, but. Um... I, I love when people start with that. Say it. <laughs> I I uh, I I'm, was a professor uh, for a long time, and I worked on very technical issues, and I still do some technical stuff, and I write in for journal articles, and I never did anything else than that. And then, fairly late in my career, after I had tenure, I decided um, I, I was asked to write a popular an, an essay for New York Times. Mm-hmm. And it was totally out of my comfort zone. I had, you know, nothing. The idea of more than six people reading something I, I wrote made me freeze in my tracks. Mm. And then, um, and then I did it and I kind of enjoyed it. And then I did more of it. And then I finally, um, I wrote a, 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 a book I'm proud of in 2000, but it was a book for university press meant for, mm-hmm. for scholars. And then I wrote a popular book. And for me, um, writing or talking to 
to a popular audience is an exercise of going beyond my, my comfort zone. And, and each time you get comfortable in it, I end up kind of pushing it a bit further. Does that count? That totally counts. And, and I think it speaks to something. Having done this work at UFC, working with people like Thaler and Nick Epley and, and then in, you know, Alison Woodbrooks as a pal and Francesca Gino, all, all those folks. Um, it's so many great ideas get stuck in the ivory tower yeah. because there's not enough good translators and the, and there's too many unreliable ones like Malcolm Gladwell, who's a great storyteller. But I mean, like when, and I knew this when he started dissecting comedy, because I'm like, you're not a comedy expert. I'm a comedy expert. And you're actually wrong about the thing you're talking about. Um, and a lot of my professor friends have, have struggles with that, but you have a, a book here that's laced with evidence, but it's a good read. And I, I, I wish that were more, the thing, then it, it, it feels like that's a fight in academia with being also popular. Well, thank you. It, it used to be, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that when people wrote popular books, um, I know my, one of my, my advisors, Steve Pinker wrote a oh, popular yeah. book, the language didn't take a long time ago. And a lot of people in the field said, what in the world are you doing? You know, <laughs> you're not, you're not Carl Sagan. Who do you think you are? <laughs> and this is mixed with jealousy Right. Sort of, and and um, I think the feel has changed. I think this work is more respected. But I'll also say in defense of my quieter academic pals who just stay in academia, writing for a popular audience is so much harder than yeah. writing a journal. In a journal, you know, bad academic writing is just fine. Nobody cares. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's just, I find it always difficult and, and a fun challenge, but difficult to write for a broad audience and, and speak to, to speak outside of my, my sort of narrow group. The book is called The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. Paul Bloom, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. This is a great conversation. Getting to Yes And is produced by The Second City, Second City Works, and WGN Radio. It's also produced by Elif Garris with help by Mike Farinacchio and Colleen Fahey. The music that you hear that intros and outros the program is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you want to get more information on The Second City, you can reach us at www.secondcityworks.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
adulthood, no one survives.